The Institute. Institute. Institute for Justice. The National Law Firm for Liberty. Hello and welcome to another edition of Short Circuit, your weekly roundup on all the most exciting action in the federal courts of appeals. My name is Paul Sherman, filling in for your regular host, John Ross, but with me as always, our director of IJ Center for Judicial Engagement, Clark Neely, and assistant director of the Center for Judicial Engagement, Evan Burnick. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. This week we've got guns in the Fourth Circuit, lies in the Sixth Circuit, jail and cell phones in the Seventh Circuit, but we're going to start with guns in the Fourth Circuit. Take it away. Okay, so this case is called United States v. Robinson. It is a Fourth Amendment case, and it gets going when an anonymous caller tells the police that she has seen somebody load a gun and get into a car in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven in a Toyota Camry. It's a black male with a female driver. Uh, The police respond to the scene. They pull over a car that's somewhere near the location. It's a Toyota Camry. They pull the people over because they're not wearing seatbelts, and they talk to the people who are inside the car. Um, uh, One of the officers uh, talks to the man, uh, becomes worried that because the man might have a gun, uh, he tells the man to get out of the car. Uh, he then asks the man if he has any weapons. The guy tell, does not say anything and gives what the officer says is a weird look. At that point, the officer pats him down, finds out that he does, in fact, have a weapon, and he is, in fact, a felon in possession. And the question is whether that, uh, that pat-down was consistent with the Fourth Amendment. And the reason why that comes up, two reasons. First of all, the traffic stop was demonstrably pretextual. Um, The cops did not care particularly that they weren't wearing seatbelts. They were pulling them over on a minor traffic violation in order to investigate what they were really interested in, uh, which is whether uh, there was an illegal possession of a firearm here. And this, the the court says as much. Um, Pretextual traffic stops, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, are perfectly constitutional. Uh, Police officers are permitted to uh, stop people for unconstitutional reasons as long as there is a constitutional reason um, that they can essentially make up after the fact. So in this case, it was uh, these people weren't wearing seatbelts. So they pulled him over. But that's not really what they're interested in. They're interested in, in seeing if this guy is illegally in possession of a firearm. The problem here is that in order to do that pat-down, it's not enough uh, to suspect that he is armed. There has to be reasonable and articulable suspicion that he is armed and dangerous. And that's the issue that divides the Fourth Circuit in this case. Right. It's a fascinating problem because, in fact, in this jurisdiction, it is legal to carry a gun on your person that is concealed. So, If you have a permit. If you have a permit. For all they know, If you have a lawful permit. Uh, I mean, the real point here is that for all the police officers knew, this guy was engaging in entirely legal activity. And the question is whether on the basis of this entirely legal activity, um, your Fourth Amendment right not to be patted down by police without a reasonable articulable suspicion of criminal activity essentially means nothing. Yeah, and uh, so this is this is a problem that's going to continue to arise because up until, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, if you saw somebody carrying a gun, it probably was illegal because in most states it was very difficult to get a concealed carry permit, and so the chances are that you didn't have one. Um, that, of course, has changed substantially, not really because of the Heller case. Actually, the move towards uh, um, granting uh, concealed carry permits pretty freely uh, began long before Heller was decided, but of course Heller has only accelerated all of that. So the problem that, uh, from law enforcement standpoint now is it's no longer presumptively criminal to be carrying a gun outside of your home. In fact, in most jurisdictions, it's entirely possible and indeed probable that that's a perfectly legal activity. So for police to simply assume that anybody they see uh, carrying a concealed weapon must be engaged in criminal activity 
let alone criminal activity and, and a present danger to the police is just not consistent with reality anymore. So how does the majority in this case respond to the dissent's argument that this is going to make traffic stops more dangerous for police officers? It may well make traffic stops more dangerous for police officers, but the fact of the matter is that the Fourth Amendment protects your right to engage in perfectly lawful activity unless the police can articulate a reasonable suspicion that's beyond a weird look that you are engaged in illegal activity. I mean, the whole point of Terry is armed and dangerous. If all it means is armed, the dangerousness drops out of the picture. The fact of the matter is that this guy, for all the police knew, was engaging in some something that is perfectly and conceitedly legal. And the police practice needs to catch up to what the present state of constitutional law is with respect to the individual right to bear arms and also needs to respect longstanding guarantees. And, and the, the other thing to remember is our Constitution does not orient itself to the preferences, even the safety preferences of law enforcement. You have a Second Amendment right uh, to own a gun. It's an open question uh, whether you have a Second Amendment right to carry that gun outside the home. But as I said a moment ago, in most jurisdictions, uh, it, it's quite easy to get a permit to do so. So the point is, it is quite plausible that people can legally carry guns outside of their home. They do not give up their Fourth Amendment rights simply because they happen to be carrying a gun. And if that presents difficulties for law enforcement, that's because of the Constitution, uh, not because uh, judges are trying to make it that way. And what's going to have to happen here is police are going to have to come up with different procedures. There may also be legislative responses. There are a number of states where police, uh, if they ask you whether you are carrying a concealed weapon, uh, you, you have to tell them um, as a condition of, of, of having a concealed carry permit. So there are all kinds of policy responses that are possible here. Uh, but the one thing that the majority gets absolutely right in this case is that the Constitution does not conform itself to law enforcement preferences. And if this um, uh, you know, requirement that you not pat people down unless they are presently armed and dangerous or appear to be uh, makes it more difficult for law enforcement, um, then that's so be it. Great. Well, we'll move on from that decision to the Sixth Circuit, which handed down Susan B. Anthony List v. Dry House this week. Uh, if you've heard that name before, that's because this case has previously been to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's a challenge to Ohio's prohibition on false political statements. Uh, when this went to the Supreme Court before, the question was, can you even bring this case procedurally? Uh, because what the Sixth Circuit had previously held is, unless you announce affirmatively in advance that you are going to be lying about candidates, you can't challenge the law. The challenge isn't ripe. Uh, the Supreme Court unanimously reversed that and said, look, we, we have to look at the way this law is actually enforced. And the way it's enforced is that whether something is a lie or not is highly contestable and people get dragged into the system, which is like full-blown litigation, with really no procedural safeguards. So now we have the decision on remand. Uh, it's gone to the Sixth Circuit again, which has held that this prohibition does violate the First Amendment. Well, so let's start with a kind of a whimsical image. Of course, this is a state law. This is an Ohio state law against making false statements in the, in the course of a political campaign. Imagine there were a federal law that made it illegal to make false statements in the course of a political campaign. Can you, can you imagine the current election grinding to a halt in a cloud of litigation, which is exactly what would happen if, if this law existed in the federal level? This is a ridiculous policy, the idea that government at any level can be involved in determining who is telling the truth, um, who's telling outright falsehoods. And of course, the really challenging part that would come up is, you know, 
there's going to be gray. There's going to be, you know, it won't always be black and white. You really want some commission of government bureaucrats deciding what, how, in, in the course of an election campaign, what speech is too close to a false? This is a ridiculous law, and it finally got what's coming to it. Yeah, the, uh, one of the interesting dynamics of this case is um, the court's uh, attempt to wrestle with a prior decision that was reached uh, regarding similar political statement laws, not identical, but similar laws. In the Sixth Circuit. It was in a the, previous in, Sixth Circuit decision. Right, in the Sixth Circuit decision. And there was an intervening Supreme Court decision that was on point here that really, I think, effectively dealt with um, a problem that the Supreme Court has grappled with over the years, um, struggled with, really, which is the constitutional uh, status of false statements. Uh, Alvarez was a case about a law that prohibited representing to people that you had won the Congressional Medal of Valor, even if uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, even if in fact you had not won the Congressional Medal of Honor. It didn't involve any uh, defrauding or any injury to anybody. It was just about false statements. And the Supreme Court said, look, false statements in and of themselves, are not outside of the ambits of uh, the, the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech. And the uh, Sixth Circuit, in this case, looked back at its president, looked at Alvarez, and came to the conclusion that you need more than just falsity to escape the First Amendment's protections. If you're going to make a false statement that actually injures somebody, yes, that's an issue. That's outside the scope of the First Amendment. But simply making a false statement in and of itself doesn't get you outside the bounds of our protections for freedom of speech. And so it's interesting the way the Sixth Circuit chose to resolve this current case. Uh, as regular listeners know, uh, when you're deciding a case under strict scrutiny, which is the highest standard of judicial review, there are two elements of that. First, the government has to articulate a compelling interest for the policy. And second, the law that it's chosen has to be narrowly tailored to that policy. It can't burden more speech than is absolutely necessary to effectuate that interest. And I think what Alvarez sort of suggests is that when you're just dealing with false speech in general, the government doesn't have a compelling interest in regulating that at all. Um, but that's actually not the way that the Sixth Circuit resolved this case. Instead, it focused primarily on the tailoring of the system uh, and was particularly concerned that there was a lack of procedural safeguards. Um, in some ways, that it, it may be a less doctrinally satisfying result because you know we'd like this ruling that says the, the government just can't police this area at all. Um, on the other hand, the fact that they looked at the tailoring and they had these concerns about these procedural things could actually be applicable to other kinds of cases other than just false uh, political speech cases and, in fact, uh, are probably applicable to a case that the Institute for Justice is litigating right now in Colorado about the private enforcement of campaign finance laws out there. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's amusing about this case is, is the whiff of desperation one gets from the state attorneys and how desperate they seem to be <clears throat> to um, <clears throat> have a lower than standard than strict scrutiny applied because the, talk about low-hanging fruit. This statute was not tailored. I mean, narrow tailor doesn't even enter into it. It wasn't tailored in any way, shape, or form to the asserted government interests. It was over-inclusive. It was under-inclusive. There were materiality problems. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And to take just one of them, there's nothing in the statute that requires uh, that the, the falsehood in question be material in any way. So you'd be in just as much trouble if you said that your opponent had uh, wore a size 10 
10 shoe when in fact they wear a size 12 shoe as if you had falsely reported that they supported a tax cut when they didn't. This was an absurd law. It was drafted who knows by who, but without any real effort to tailor the law to the government's stated concern. And it's pretty clear that the state attorneys understood that if it was going to be evaluated under any meaningful standard of scrutiny, where there was any kind of tailoring required whatsoever, they were going to lose, and they did. Well, now the law is off the books. Congratulations to uh, the attorneys at Jones Day who represented the plaintiffs in that case. Uh, It's a big victory for them, and it's going to be useful precedent in other cases. Uh, Moving from that, unfortunately, to a very tragic case out of the Seventh Circuit is Glisson v. Indiana Department of Corrections. Clark, do you want to tell us what happened there? Um, this is a really sad case, and I'm, I'm, uh, this case makes me very upset. I, I don't know what could possibly have been going through the mind of the prosecutor in this case, and maybe he, he or she knows something that we don't. Um, one thing that, that arouses suspicion right off the bat is the difference in the way that the majority, um, which uh, dismisses uh, the, uh, the this, this case involves a prisoner who died from illness while incarcerated, and his his family brought suit, um, uh, basically saying that he wouldn't have died if he'd been properly taken care of. So right off the bat, we have the majority, which which throws out the lawsuit, um, describing the reason why he was in jail. Um, is because uh, he was engaged in the sale of controlled substances, which makes it sound pretty shady and bad. Um, but Judge Wood, in her dissent, says, uh, actually, we should, we should have a more uh, complete description of the facts in case, this case. And in fact, what was going on here is this is a man uh, who was suffering from uh, laryngeal cancer. Um, he'd had a number of different surgeries. He'd had his uh, larynx and parts of his pharynx removed, uh, part of his jaw, 13 teeth. I mean, this guy was in bad shape. He was also suffering from depression, alcoholism, hypothyroidism, and a variety of other conditions. And in the midst of all this, he gave one prescription painkiller pill to a friend. And for that, <clears throat> he, was, he was convicted by the federal government uh, of, of a drug crime and put in jail. This man was taking care of his dying brother, his sick mother, and also somehow taking care of himself despite all of these problems. And someone in the U.S. government thought that it was very critically important that this person be incarcerated for giving a single prescription painkiller uh, pill to a friend. I find that outrageous. And then he died in, in the care of, uh, of the uh, Indiana Department of Corrections, and I find that outrageous. Oh, and I may have misspoken. This doesn't appear to have been a federal prosecution. This was a state prosecution, um, but no less reprehensible. And care might be a generous way of describing it. They lost his neck brace. They lost his voice prosthesis. There was a systematic failure to attend to what are really debilitating mental and physical conditions that this man was suffering from, and he eventually died in custody. The question in this case is whether the the private contractor that was responsible for his medical care, which is treated as a municipal entity uh, for the purposes of constitutional tort liability, um, was uh, actually committed a constitutional violation, actually violated the Eighth Amendment in virtue of being deliberately indifferent to his care. And the argument that the government made is that we can't be held liable, or the, uh, the company rather, we can't be held liable for this because we actually didn't have a concerted policy in place. And you can't hold us, uh, you can't hold us accountable for inaction, the lack of a policy. Yeah, I mean, basically the argument here that the, the, the plaintiffs make, the, the family of the man uh, who was, I think it's fair to say, who was killed in custody, um, uh, their argument is, look, your policy, and in, in order to, to prevail in this case, they have to argue that there was a, a, an actual policy that they're challenging. And their argument is your policy 
was not to have a policy. There was actually a, a, a formal directive that had been uh, put in place by the Indiana Department of Corrections that said that each facility must develop uh, specific guidelines for managing uh, uh, prisoners with chronic diseases, which is what this guy had. The facility completely failed to follow that directive. And the plaintiffs argued, that was your policy. Your policy was one of indifference. And the dissent in this case, uh, quite correctly in my view, says yes, that that itself, to, to not have a policy, if it's, if it's a conscious decision to, to not have a policy, particularly in the face of a directive like that, that itself is a kind of policy and one for which you can be held liable. Unfortunately, the, uh, the majority disagrees and instead deploys what has become all too common in modern litigation, which is to deploy a thicket of doctrines, um, immunities, uh, privileges, essentially making it as difficult as possible for a citizen ever to hold uh, government or the government's agents accountable for their misconduct. When you put um, a chronically ill person, when you decide to put that person in jail, you take upon you a responsibility. And one of the responsibilities you take upon you is to give them at least some minimal level of care. That responsibility was abdicated in this case, and the people involved should absolutely have been held liable uh, for their negligence and for their complete indifference uh, to this individual in allowing him to die simply by not having um, a, a sane policy for managing uh, patients with chronic medical conditions. This was a disgrace. Right. And the subtext of this is a series of decisions that the Supreme Court has made over the years to retreat from the implications of earlier decisions that has ma it made about holding government entities and private contractors who are stand in the position of government entities responsible for constitutional injuries. But even given the retreat that the Supreme Court has made over the years, um, the case in point that, uh, that both uh, the majority in the sentence discuss, Manel, does not require a written formulated policy. It requires deliberate conduct as the moving force behind a decision that the entity makes. And there is no doubt that there was a conscious decision at some point in the, you know, the chain of commands um, not to have a systematic way of dealing with people with a number of chronic debilitating injuries. And that, that decision, um, I think it's fair to say, was responsible for this man's death. I would just conclude with one point, and that is, if you are unwilling to take upon yourself the responsibility to provide at least a minimum level of medical care to chronically ill individuals who are in your custody, don't take them into custody particularly if they are not engaging in any conduct that threatens anybody, that violates anybody's rights, or that hurts anybody. Just leave them alone if you're unwilling to care for them. Well, our sympathies go out to the family of Mr. Glisson. Turning from that to a much happier and far more entertaining opinion, we have United States v. Panagua Garcia, uh, a case involving texting and driving, which uh, well, not itself a humorous thing, resulted in a humorous opinion. Yeah, well, it's a Judge Posner opinion, so that you, you know that there's going to be a touch of whimsy. Um, the case involves an Indiana statute that forbids drivers from texting or sending emails uh, on their cell phones, but doesn't uh, actually prohibit them from you know surfing the internet or watching movies or just fiddling with their phone. Yeah, so if you look at your smartphone, all those apps on your smartphone, you can, you can fool around with any of those while you're driving in Indiana, except for the, the text function and the email function. But all that other stuff, mapping, music, everything else you can fiddle with, just not the texting. Angry birds. Angry birds. Right. right. And Posner notes that the specificity of this law doesn't make a ton of sense. But anyway, the specificity actually becomes very important because you have a guy who's pulled over because an officer sees him uh, hunched over and looking at his phone. Now, being hunched over and looking at your phone is not itself uh, an illegal act, and it isn't really even close to an 
illegal act under Indiana law, which only focuses on texting and messaging. Now, to be clear, and, if the officer had somehow been able to see that this guy had an email program right. open or was in fact texting, that would have been a sufficient right. basis for pulling him over because that would have been probable cause to believe he was violating that law. But the officer didn't see what he was doing with the phone. Right. And we actually know for a fact after the fact uh, they checked his cell phone. He wasn't sending emails and he wasn't texting. At any rate, he gets pulled over. Um, he gets asked whether he has anything in his car. He has, gets asked whether he can search. Uh, the, the officer can search his car. The officer searches his car and he finds drugs. And the question is whether um, the initial stop uh, was consistent with the Fourth Amendment because um, uh, it's actually not illegal to do anything that the officer actually saw him doing. Posner makes a delightful um, analogy or metaphor in this case, which he's obviously very good at. Um, they're not always effective, but I think this one's quite effective. And what he says essentially is, look, it is illegal under Indiana law uh, to consume alcohol while you're driving a car. What if a police officer had seen this guy drinking out of a coffee cup while he's driving his car? It's entirely possible that there's alcohol in that coffee cup. Um, but is that a sufficient basis to pull him over just because it's possible that among the different beverages he could have been consuming from that cup was was alcohol, which would, would, would be illegal? And the answer, of course, is no. There's, there's no uh, objective reason to believe that he's consuming consuming alcohol out of that coffee cup. It could be any number of things. That is precisely the case when somebody's fiddling with a cell phone in the car. Yes, of course they could be texting or emailing, but there's a bunch of other things they could be doing as well. So I think the metaphor uh, works. And as Evan noted a moment ago, Judge Posner at the end of the opinion points out that perhaps the problem here is with the law. And if you want people not to be distracted while they're driving, then you should make it illegal to be fiddling around with any part of your, or any uh, program on your cell phone, which apparently is what Illinois right next door actually does. And if you see somebody fiddling with their cell phone while driving in Illinois, that is a sufficient basis to pull them over because they're not supposed to be fiddling with it at all. But, but until that happens... Until that happens. But in Indiana, the law is different. Uh, and in order to pull somebody over, you have to have a reasonable and articulable suspicion of wrongdoing. And that was lacking in this case because there's a bunch of things this guy could have been doing with his cell phone that were not illegal. Uh, end of the day, stop was improper. The drugs go uh, get tossed as fruit of the uh, poisonous tree. And this guy walks. Great. Well, that's going to do it for another edition of the Short Circuit Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And join us again next week when we do another roundup of the most exciting cases in the federal courts of appeals. Mm -hmm.